Amen. I got to tell you, I love that song. I love that song. And I hope that as you sang it, you sang it authentically. And I want to tell you that if you did, it's really only through the gospel that you can do that. Really, I mean, it is well with my soul. That's something that's a gift. You know, Jesus comes to us and he says, in this world, you will have trouble. We're all familiar with that, right? And then he says, and take heart because you are really talented. And so you're going to be able to figure it out. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, don't worry about it because with, through technology and, and science and all of this stuff, in the end, it's going to be all right. In this world, you will have trouble, but by your prosperity, you're going to be able to sustain this. You're, you're going to be able to work through this. You're going to be able to get rid of all that trouble and everything's going to be fine and you're not going to die. And it's not what he says. He's too wise and honest for that. He comes to us with authentic hope, and it's not us. He says, listen, here, here's the deal. In this world, you're going to have trouble, but take heart, and here's why. One reason, because I have overcome the world. And how did he do it? Through his life, sufferings, death, burial, and then what? Resurrection, after which he entered into eternal glory. But a glory that's not just his. It's his but it's gifted to us. So keep that in mind as we continue to talk today about the gospel. For the last couple of months, we've been talking here at Rio about the gospel, and specifically we've been talking about what it looks like or how it is that you and I can come to live as what I've been calling the renewing agents of God, or to say it differently yet again, as those who learn how by the power of the Spirit to wake up every single day and to offer ourselves authentically to God, more so today than yesterday and more so tomorrow than today, etc., as his agents of renewal, or really as those who are seeking by the power of his spirit and in accordance with his word and in community with one another to effectively be, albeit imperfectly, the presence of Jesus in all the different arenas of life that he puts us in, in our homes, in our offices, in our schools, in our city, in our world, and wherever else he takes us as he providentially guides us through every single one of our days. Lord, how can I be the presence of Christ today? How can I introduce his attitude? How can I how can I express His mercy? How can I show His kindness? How can I be the instrument of His gentleness? How can I share His love and His grace? How can I speak His wisdom and His words of life? How can I be His hands and His feet and His arms and His legs and His eyes and His ears and His nose and His mouth and His heart and His mind imperfectly? But there's grace for that today. So that's what we've been talking about. And today as we now continue that conversation, what I want you to see is doing that is going to involve at least some measure of suffering. I don't want to leave you with the impression that following Jesus is nothing more than a trail of tears. It's not. But there are tears and there are difficulties. In this life, you will have trouble. Is Jesus trying to pull a fast one on us? Like, I mean, he's telling us that up front. It's not a bait and switch. Oh, come follow me and everything will be fine. He's going, no, no, no. You will have trouble, but there's hope. And the hope is Jesus. I've overcome the world. So there will be some suffering in the following of Jesus, in the getting up and authentically giving myself to Jesus, in the seeking to be the presence of Jesus in the various arenas of life. And there will be suffering that are related specifically to that endeavor. In other words, some people are going to look at you as you identify with Jesus and like actually come out and go, yes, I'm a Christian. In today's society, and they're going to think, you know, maybe you're a little off, okay? Okay. Maybe you're not so bright. 
And maybe you're one of those kind of people, whatever that even means. They'll mislabel you. They'll misjudge you. They'll misrepresent you. They'll leave you off their invitation list. Look, those are minor things compared to what some people in the world are facing. There they just kill you. It's pretty significant. But nevertheless, there will be suffering in this endeavor of seeking to live as the renewing agent of God, both directly as we identify with Jesus, but then indirectly too, you know, as as we seek to live out our lives as broken people in a broken world. And as a result of our own brokenness, as a result of the brokenness of others, broken systems, broken institutions, all of which are a reflection of our own soul. They're the best we've got, but they don't give us reason to take heart ultimately, do they? God ordains our days. He numbers them out. He knows what's coming within each one. Therefore, does He not ordain what He knows? Of course He does. It must come to pass. He's foreseen it. And therefore, then, that includes suffering. So, The first thing that I want you to see as we continue this conversation today is that living as the renewing agent of God, okay, is going to involve some measure of suffering. And then here's what I really want you to see. I want you to see how to endure the suffering. And here's how we do it. We endure it by realizing, by seeing with the eyes of faith, not with the eyes of our heads, that in fact, our suffering is not just going to end, but it's going to end in eternal glory. And here's why it's going to end in eternal glory, because God's goal for us is to conform us to the image of Christ which means that our lives are going to follow the pattern of His. And what is the pattern of the life of Jesus? I mean, we have the gospel record of it, but, but He doesn't hide it, that from us either. Like, He comes and tells us what it is. So you go into Luke chapter 24. It's the morning of the resurrection. Two of His disciples have tapped out on the whole deal. They've watched the crucifixion. They've heard that, in fact, He's been raised from the dead. And they're like, this is crazy. And so they're leaving town. And what does the Lord do? Does He just wash His hands of them and say, well, I guess if it's crazy to you, I'll just let you go off then. No, He runs them down. It's what He does. He pursues unrelentingly. He appears to them. They don't really recognize who He is, at least not yet in the narrative. And they're talking about crucifixion and death and burial and the, the, you know, the sound, the, the, the rumor that they heard that He was raised from the dead. And what does Jesus say? He says, was it not necessary, according to the Hebrew Bible, according to what we call the Old Testament, for the Christ to do what? Because here's the pattern. For the Christ to suffer and then to enter into His glory. There it is. That's the pattern of the life of Jesus, but not just of the life of Jesus, of of my life. And of your life as a follower of Jesus, we're being conformed to the image of Jesus. We follow the same pattern, which means there will be some measure of suffering. But how does it end? Because it ends the same way as it did with Jesus. It ends in glory for him, for me, and for you. And if you've been doing your personal worship this week and you've been studying through the passage of Scripture that we're now going to look at, you know, you might be listening to everything that I said and say, okay, so, you know, I think I understand what you've said. It's going to involve suffering. We endure it by knowing that it ends in glory. The reason it ends in glory is our lives follow the pattern of the life of Christ, and that's how it ended for him, and therefore then also for me and for you and everybody else who believes in him. Yeah, how in the world did you get that out of this passage of Scripture that I've been studying through all week? Because it seems at least like it has nothing whatsoever to do with this. We've been studying the transfiguration personally in preparation for now. And I don't get all of this from the transfiguration. Here's how I get it. 
by taking the story of the transfiguration that hopefully you've been studying all week and laying it down next to the story of the crucifixion and realizing that these two stories are connected in such a way as to make it clear not only that suffering ends in glory, but that it produces it, that it results in it for Jesus and for us. So we're going to look at the story of the transfiguration in Matthew chapter 17. But before we do that, I want to back up just a little bit into Matthew 16. And I want to give you the context for the story. Every story has a context, and the context always matters. It helps you to understand the story. So when you look at Matthew 16, what do you see happening? Well, you see Jesus. He's gathered up his guys. They're going to have a little private room conversation together. And he says to his guys, hey guys, you know, you're the ones who are interacting most directly with the crowds. I mean, you're crowd management control folks. I send you guys into town to go get food and to go get supplies and to do this and to do that. Wherever I go, it's like they're mobbing me. But you guys actually have the authentic opportunity to interact with these people, to listen to what they're saying, to pick up on their conversations, to ask them what they're thinking. And so then Jesus drops this question on them, and it's an important question. It's not what do they say that I am, it's who. Who do people say that I am? So his apostles, his disciples start answering the question. You know, like one guy pipes up and he says, well, you know, actually yesterday I was down at the market and some guy was making the case that you're John the Baptist. And here are all the reasons. Like here's his argument. It's actually pretty telling, Lord. I I thought it was kind of striking. Isn't that interesting? Another guy pipes up and says, yeah, you know what, I've heard that one, but I heard a better one. I heard one about you being Elijah. Let me make that case. And another guy pipes in and said, listen, I've heard both of those. They're impressive, but let me make the case for Jeremiah. And another one pops up and he goes, hey, you know what? All good, and I see it. I get it. Makes sense to me. How about Isaiah? How about Micah? How about Elisha? They just start running through the fact patterns of the lives of all of these different people. And they're saying, Lord, they're saying that you're this person and then this person and then this person and then all of these Old Testament saints. And that sounds weird to us today because we hear that and think, why in the world would they say that Jesus was John the Baptist? Good grief, they were contemporaries. They stood in the same river next to each other. So it's pretty clear they're two different people, are they not? But what about all these other guys? Elijah, Jeremiah, all the prophets. Those guys lived centuries before Jesus was even born. So in what sense are they saying that Jesus is any one of those characters in the sense that these people who lived in that day and who then followed Jesus around everywhere that he went, listening to everything that he said, watching everything that he did, carefully observing his life, and who lived with the knowledge of the details of the facts of every one of these other lives in the Old Testament, what's happening is these people are going, wow, you know, as I'm watching the life of Jesus play out here, it looks just like the life of Jeremiah. Yeah, but not just Jeremiah. What about Elijah? Yeah, but what about John the Baptist? Yeah, what about Isaiah? What about, what about, what about, what about? And so having provoked this conversation, Jesus now gets to the point. He's so masterful. This is what he really wants to know. These guys have now heard all of this. And he says, all right, time out. I think we got it. Who do you say that I am? And by the Spirit, Peter literally has a revelation by which God enables him to do the math on that whole conversation. 
and he realizes, wait, wait a minute, hang on a second. So how can the lives of all of these Old Testament saints authentically find recognizable, like I can make the argument for this and everybody can see it, expression in the life of just one man? Unless that one man is the man that every one of those people by means of their lives, their teachings, and everything else, we're pointing toward, we're anticipating, we're prefiguring. So then who must that man be? Well, he must be the Christ, the Son of the living God. So Peter pipes up and he says, you're the Christ. You're the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, right answer. Very good. Excellent job. Fantastic. You got it. That's it. And then what does he do? He tells them what that means. For him, for them, for me and for you, and in very practical terms. And what does it mean? Because here's the pattern. Are you ready? Suffering that doesn't just end, but produces glory. Eternal glory for Him and by Him and for us as well. So then with all that background, we pick up our study today in Matthew 17, beginning in verse 1, where Matthew says this. He says, and after six days, meaning six days after that conversation that I just related, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, the brother of James, and he led them up a high mountain. And not that it matters, but they're up in northern Israel. The tallest mountain is Mount Hermon. It's about 9,200 feet. I'm pretty sure, at least, like if I had to bet the rent, that that would be the one. Mount Hermon means literally holy mountain. When you fast forward a few decades and you get to where Peter is sitting down and he's writing about this event in the book of 2 Peter. He talks of it as the holy mountain. But he brings these guys up onto the high mountain, whichever mountain it may be, and he takes them up there by themselves. And then we read that Jesus was transfigured or literally transformed before them in his face. Here's what it looked like. His face, which previously looked like mine or yours in some sense. Okay, shone like the sun. So that's a little different. And his clothes, which looked like ours, different fashion, but you get the idea, became as white as light. And then that's not all, for we then read, and behold, there appeared to who? To Jesus? Well, yeah, obviously, but, but that's not what it says. There appeared to them, to, to the disciples, to Peter, to, to James, to John. Clearly, this was an encouragement, this whole vision and episode to the Lord before he turns his face toward Jerusalem to go and enter into his suffering. No question about that. But I think there's also no question that there is a big-time message for these guys in this. Jesus led them up there. He led them up there by themselves. Jesus was transfigured. What's the language? Before them. And then there appeared to them. Who? Moses. And Elijah. And they're talking with Jesus. And these guys are taking it in. And what are they talking about? Matthew doesn't tell us, but Luke tells us. So then what does he say? He says that they're talking about the cross. They're, they're talking about the sufferings by which Jesus will lead his people in a new exodus, like from the Old Testament. He will lead his people out of slavery to sin, out of the land of the dead, if you will. He will deliver his people from sin and death and grant to them his great glory. So I think what's happening here in the story is that God is giving to these disciples a glimpse of the glory of Jesus Christ that in his incarnation, in taking to himself human flesh, entering into this world as one of us, he masked in our humanity. 
so that he could enter into this world to do what? To suffer, to die, to be buried, to be raised. He's the author of life, honestly. I know it sounds mystifying, but if he's God, that's not mystifying. So that what? He could retake the glory. He could unmask himself and, and once again express his eternal glory. Yeah, sure, but, but really so that he could take those of us who claim his life, sufferings, death, burial, and resurrection as the payment of our sin and who grant and give ourselves freely to the one who has purchased us. Okay, so he could clothe our humanity, if you will, in his eternal glory. It's a remarkable exchange. And you say, well, how are these guys supposed to learn all of that from this story of the transfiguration? They're not. They don't learn it until after they see the crucifixion, which I think is why Jesus at the end of this story tells these guys, listen, don't talk about this vision with anyone until after I've suffered and died and been raised. Because only then is it going to make sense to you. Until then, it doesn't make any sense, as evidenced by what Peter does next. In verse 4, it says, And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good that we're here, and it is good. But he has no idea actually why yet. And so he says, And if you wish, I will make three tents. The word's actually tabernacles. Here, and I'll, I'll make one for you, Jesus, and then I'll make one for you, Moses. By the way, nice to meet you. And I'll make one for you, Elijah. Always have read about you. Been a bigot fan and admirer. Okay, as if all of them are somehow on equal footing. And so God the Father, in the presence of the cloud that we see in the Old Testament, that luminous cloud, it was a pillar of fire by night, you know, and the cloud by day, appears. And he sets the record straight. It says, Peter was still speaking. When behold, when look, a bright cloud overshadowed who? Jesus. Them. They're the ones experiencing this. I think it's for them. And a voice from the cloud said to them, this, meaning Jesus, not Moses, not Elijah, is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And so here's what you're to do. Here's what I'm to do. Here's what we're all to do. He says, listen to him. Why? Because he alone has the words of life. Because he alone has the words of wisdom. He alone can bring order out of chaos and light out of darkness and life out of death. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, Remember this for later. They fell on their faces and were terrified. But now notice what Jesus does, and remember this too. But Jesus, whose face and whose clothing had now returned to, you know, normal, he's not glowing, came to them and he bent down and he touched them. And what did he say? Saying, rise, it's the language of resurrection. And then he says, and have no fear. There is no cause for fear in the presence of Almighty God if... We've claimed the sufferings, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ as the full payment for all of our self-worship, for all of our selfishness, for all of our idolatry, for all the ways we've taken a life that was created to be lived for Him and lived it for ourselves, and we've all done it. Now, Christ pays for all that. Rise and do not fear. And when they had lifted up their eyes, we read that they saw no one but Jesus only, 
And as they were coming down the mountain, here it is, Jesus commanded them, tell no one about the vision that you just saw until the Son of Man, until I am raised from the dead. And here's why, because you're not going to be able to understand it until you can lay it down next to my sufferings, next to the story of my crucifixion. At which point, when you compare those two accounts, you're going to realize that they are the mirrored opposite of one another and that they are connected in such a way as to make it clear not only that suffering is followed by glory, but that suffering produces it. And so then, for example, and I'll give you some examples, when you compare the accounts, you realize this, that before his transfiguration, Jesus went to the top of Mount Hermon to pray. Okay, before the crucifixion, where did he go? Garden of Gethsemane. Yeah, yeah, but where is it located? At the bottom of the Mount of Olives. At the transfiguration, Luke tells us that Peter and James and John were sleepy until the Lord was transfigured. And then they woke wide up and they saw all of this and experienced everything that we just studied. But, but at the base of the Mount of Olives in the Garden of Gethsemane, notwithstanding the fact that Jesus kept coming to these guys and waking them up and saying, pray, pray, they couldn't stay awake. Jesus was honored atop Mount Hermon, but at the crucifixion, He was debased on Golgotha. At the transfiguration, Jesus was flanked by two of the greatest Old Testament saints. On the cross, two criminals, one on either side. See how it works? At the transfiguration, his face shone like the sun. At the count of the crucifixion tells us what? That the sun itself was obscured, that the land was filled with darkness. At the transfiguration, his clothes shone white as light. At the cross, he hung naked, no clothes, just shame. At the transfiguration, Jesus appeared with unsurpassed beauty. On the cross, we are told, he was marred beyond human recognition and likeness for our sin. At the transfiguration, Jesus was unveiled to reveal his own radiant glory. On the cross, he was clothed in our sin and in our shame. At the transfiguration, his closest disciples eagerly drew near to worship him. And and on the cross, they... They abandoned him at the transfiguration. The father expressed his great pleasure with Jesus. On the cross, he poured out his great wrath. Last one, but there are more. At the transfiguration, the father told his disciples to listen to Jesus. But on the cross, as Jesus carried our sin, even the father turned a deaf ear to him. But again, the cross is not the end of the story. And neither is the grave. It doesn't end in death and the grave, guys. It ends in resurrection, and it ends in eternal glory. For Jesus laid aside the glory that we get a glimpse of in the transfiguration to enter into this world as one of us so that he might, through his sufferings, death, burial, and resurrection, do what? Clothe us in his glory. And the Apostle Paul also makes mention of this. And he speaks not just to the glory that is ours because of the suffering of Jesus, but he talks also about how it is that God walks through my life and yours and collects up all the suffering that after the pattern of Jesus, God has ordained that we experience in this life and redeems even that. And so Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, he says, for this light momentary affliction, and if you know anything about the sufferings of the Apostle Paul, you know that there's nothing in them to suggest the words light, momentary, or even affliction. Like, you know, he's got a, he walked into a a cloud of gnats or something. It's not it. It's huge. But he's looking at it with the eyes of faith, and he's looking at it through the lens of what it's producing. And he's saying, you know, when I look at it like that, even though it's, it's like this when I look at it with the eyes of my head, but with the eyes of faith, it, 
It feels kind of light and momentary and just, I don't know, a couple of gnats. I mean, they're sort of irritating, but that's about it. For this light momentary affliction, he says, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, those are easy to see. In fact, it's almost impossible to take our eyes off of that, isn't it? But he's calling you to do that. As we look not to the things that are seen, to all the problems that we have, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient, they're passing away, we're passing away. We even use that language, but the things that are unseen, like the unseen glory to come that is being produced by our sufferings too, are eternal. The Apostle John, it was present at the transfiguration and at the crucifixion. You remember the story, Jesus looks at John who's standing there with Mary, his mother, and he says, Mother, behold your son, Son, behold your mother. He entrusts her to his care. Later wrote the book of Revelation in which he talks about the new heavens and the new earth and in which he talks about us, the church of Jesus Christ. And he tells us what we will look like. He ties this idea of suffering and glory together too. He begins this book by saying that he sees the Lord in all of his glory. And when he sees the Lord in all of his glory in the beginning of Revelation, what does he do? The same thing he did on the Mount of Transfiguration, on his face in fear. What does Jesus do? Same thing, walks over, bends over, touches him and says, do not be afraid. After that, he says that an angel carried him to a high and great mountain. Does that sound familiar? In order to show him the stunning beauty, this time not of Jesus, but of us, of the church of the bride of Jesus in that day. So he sees from the top of that mountain a transfiguration, but this time it's our transfiguration. And upon seeing the church, John says that it's shone with the glory of God and that the clothing given to the bride was bright and clean. It was white like light. But more than that, he then goes on to describe God's people, the church, as a city. It's poetic. It's not a literal city. It's the description of us as a city made of what? What are the building materials? Gold, precious stones, and pearl. What does that suggest? What does that speak to? I think it speaks to the value of our suffering and for all of eternity. And here's why I say that. How do you make gold? How is gold made? How are precious stones made? They're made deep in the crust of the earth, guys. And they're made from great heat and pressure. And they need to be unearthed. (laughs) All of these kinds of things are things that John comes and says, listen, in the next life, no great heat, no great pressure, no suffering, none of that. But, but what will we look like then? Gold, precious stones are the idea. Things that have been made beautiful. How? Through great heat and pressure, which we experience where? Not there. Now. And what about the pearl? It's that same kind of an idea. How is it made? It's made in the little shell of this creature who suffers in the darkness and in the loneliness and seclusion of the sea. But by God's design, does what with his suffering? He produces something very beautiful. Why? Because as the Lord has designed it, when a little you know, piece of shell or a piece of sand or whatever enters into his little home and it begins to irritate his skin, he has the capacity and ability then to secrete, to produce this organic material that is soft and that surrounds that irritant. And so then it's by the suffering of the oyster that the beauty of the pearl is produced. I think in using those building materials to describe us, what he's saying is that when you enter into the new heavens and the new earth, okay, as the new city of God, the heat, the pressure, the irritant's gone. But 
here's what you're going to see. You're going to see how God has taken all of your suffering and he's used it to turn you into something, to someone far more magnificent and beautiful than you can at this point imagine. It's remarkable. And so what that means is that when you're in a moment or season of suffering, God is doing something glorious, though with the eyes of your head you can't see it, but with the eyes of faith, armed with the imagination of Scripture, you can see it and follow the example of somebody like Paul who goes, hey, if I just look at this with the eyes of my head, okay, it doesn't look light, it's not momentary, and affliction, really? But when I in faith accept and embrace the reality that God's up to something, it changes the size. It's remarkable. So living as the renewing agents of God or the presence of Christ in our homes and offices and schools and city and world involves a measure of suffering for Him and just in general. But we can endure that suffering in a really profoundly unique way as those who know that it is well with our soul. Why? Because we're really smart and gifted and talented and science is wonderful. and It's none of that. Because we belong to the one who overcomes by His sufferings and through his sufferings and death, and through ours, will clothe us with his eternal glory. And here's what that frees us to do. It frees us to embrace our sufferings in the here and in the now as the very means by which God is trying in this life and then also for all of eternity to conform us to the image of Jesus. But I think that requires us to do some things. Like, for example, I think it requires us to allow our sufferings to drive us to God as opposed to away from God. And that is a choice, isn't it? I think it requires us to focus more on what we're gaining than on what we're losing. Because when we look with our eyes, of our heads, all we see is the lost man. That's it. And the Lord's going, no, 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 you've got another set of eyes. You're gaining something far more magnificent. I think it requires us to actively look for the ways that God is seeking to do something in us by means of whatever difficulties that he brings into our lives, as opposed to just trying to escape it, as opposed to just trying to avoid it, as opposed to just trying to get through it. I think we need to recognize it as coming from the hand of God, whatever that may be, and to say, okay, Lord, I'm in it anyway, so What am I supposed to learn here? What am I supposed to do here? How am I supposed to use this? How can I participate in what you're doing? I think it requires us finally to think more about heaven in the midst of our sufferings than we do about earth. My goodness, if suffering should do anything, it should make us long for heaven. So I think that we can embrace it as the God-ordained means of making us more like Jesus, but then secondly and lastly, I think what it does is it frees us to embrace our suffering as the means by which God may be seeking to actually use us as his renewing agents, to actually use us as his very presence in the different arenas of life that God has providentially put us into because each one of those arenas are full of people who need to see our faith show up when it matters the most, when it's the most costly, when it's the most challenged, when the circumstances of our lives seem to run contrary to everything we know and believe, when it shows up then, it shows up big. 
So I'm going to close with this. Two questions. How are you suffering right now? Guessing you don't need to spend a lot of time on that one. You know that one, don't you? Okay, so then here's the real question. What are you doing with it? What are you doing with it? Running to God or away? Embracing, rejecting. Loving, resenting. Focusing on what you're losing or gaining. Thinking more about heaven, less. And are you cognizant of the ways that God wants to make you like Jesus and embracing that and participating in it and looking for how you can, from your bones, as we talked about at the beginning of the service, sing forth to your Savior even when it might be the hardest season of life for you to do it. And by doing it, testify not only to your own soul of the reality of the one in whom you can take heart, but everybody else who watches you do it more profoundly in that season than any other. So chew on that, okay? And let's pray. Father, we thank you that we have a suffering Savior, and we thank you for our suffering Savior, not merely because it's by his suffering that he paid uh, the penalty, that he satisfied the debt that we owe you for living for ourselves, for taking our lives and using them for a different purpose than the one that you ordained for them to be used. But we thank you that we have a suffering Savior too because, well, in this life we suffer. And it is beautiful to know that we suffer for one who has suffered for us that we're being conformed to that one, that we will know His glory, that He will redeem our suffering, that He'll bring good out of things that we cannot even imagine good coming out of. And He'll do that in this life and in the next. It's just wonderful to know too that that as we walk through life, we, we walk through it with one who knows what it is like to suffer and who doesn't leave us behind, but who leads us through it. And so then we commit all these things to you, all these difficult things that occur to us in this life, and we ask that by faith you would give us the grace, Lord, necessary to embrace them and to fully utilize them to your advantage and ours. Pray that you would give us the wisdom by which to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.